0: If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, this morning for our Old Testament scripture reading. Here we find one of several passages in the Old Testament from which our Savior quotes this morning, as he will provide a proper course corrective for how it is that we are to understand passages like these that speak of. That principle of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, as the law requires, and then speaks of what Christian charity demands. Leviticus chapter 24, we will read verses 17 to 22. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God." Now, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 for our New Testament reading and sermon text this morning, here Jesus continues His exposition of the law and shows how the righteousness that God requires runs much deeper uh, than the religious celebrities of Jesus' own day and age. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is our Savior's word. He speaks with such authority that at the end of this sermon, we read that the crowds are astonished at the authority of Jesus' own Speech. Let us go before the Lord and pray that he would open our eyes to understand what it is Jesus is so authoritatively commanding his church to do. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do confess to you uh, how easy it is for us uh, to fall back on uh, those words that we are all familiar with, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Uh, as you help us to understand what your word says and what you require of your children, uh, we pray that you would be gracious to us, uh, that you would instruct us, and that you would give us wisdom in our dealings with those who hurt us, and those who wrong us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So what do you do when somebody cuts you off in traffic? How is it that you respond? Perhaps you might recognize that this is a, an example an illustration I keep coming back to because I have to speak from personal experience. Do you blare the horn? Do you pull out right next to them and let them know with certain hand gestures that you, are, you think they are number one? Do you speed up, cut them off, slam the brakes, and then proceed to ride just a few miles under the speed limit, ensuring that they are not able to get around you? What do you do with the neighbor who blares his music too loud at night? Or that really annoying neighbor who decides it is his duty to trim your hedges in ways that he doesn't have the right to, in ways that really, really annoy you? What do you do when he blocks your driveway? What do you do when he has an animal do his business in your front yard while on a walk and not clean up after himself? Do you try to reason frankly about these problems with him? Do you try to take them, if necessary, to the proper authorities? Or do you decide to try to take matters into your own hands? His dog has done his business in my yard. I guess I will have my dog do the same in his. Tit for tat. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. What he has done to me, he is simply getting, and here is the phrase... Is just desserts. Try this one on for size. How do you respond as a Christian to an overbearing, repressive government? Government that commands you to do things that are not actually sinful, but are certainly annoying. Certainly forcing you to do things that you do not like. You see, the questions that I'm asking, not just you, but asking myself this morning, are very practical concerns, and these are the types of concerns Jesus is getting at here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. We have to recognize how eminently practical Jesus' sermon is to us here in the 21st century. Just like the church today, the church in Jesus' own day had a variety of opinions on what the people of God should and could do to those who mistreat them. And some of them would even quote the Old Testament as a means to somehow justify their own vindictive response to those who have harmed them. What we see in our passage this morning is that Jesus cuts through the fog. And he shows us what role personal vendettas and retaliation plays in the lives of those who are the citizens of heaven. And not to... Give too much of a spoiler alert, but we find that such a lifestyle plays no role in the life of the people of God, or at least it shouldn't. Not when we consider the righteousness of God, which is the very thing Jesus in this portion of the sermon has been calling us to do, as he he calls to account the, the reality that we must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees those scribes and those religious teachers of Jesus' day who justified retaliation, retribution, and even revolution. So I'd like us to consider two things this morning. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of retaliation. You see that here in verse 38. And then secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of deference. Deference, verses 39 to 42. So retaliation and deference. Well, we see now for a fifth time, Jesus contrasts those misinterpretations of the law that was found in his own day over and against the law's initial intent. You see that with that structure that he has been doing over and over again. You have heard it was said, and he quotes some portion of the Old Testament, and he says, but I say to you, He is not saying that the Old Testament is wrong. He is not saying that he has abolished the New Testament. Remember, he has already declared in verses 17 to 20, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Rather, I have come to fulfill them. Jesus is addressing the question of what the proper fulfillment of those righteous requirements look like in our daily lives. And here Jesus comes to a very uh, famous portion of Scripture, one that forms the bedrock of what we might call justice among the nations, Uh, the principle of lex talionis, that principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I think it's rather interesting that so far we're only five chapters into Matthew's gospel, and so much of Jesus's own ministry has been spent correcting and exposing distorted interpretations of the Scriptures. Again, this is the fifth time Jesus has said, you have heard it was said, but now I say to you, and he gives the proper interpretation, the meaning of the law, but this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus do this. You, you, you see, even in the wilderness, as Satan comes to confront Jesus, what does he do? He, Satan continually comes to twist Scripture, and Jesus responds over and over and over again. You don't know what the Scriptures are truly saying. Thus says the Lord, this it, it, thus it is written. And here we come to a great legal principle that has stood the test of time, and yet it is a great legal principle uh, that by Jesus' own day had been corrupted and distorted, misinterpreted, perhaps a better way to put it. There, it's, a, it's a law that you see going back to not just Moses. Given divinely to Moses by God on top of Mount Sinai, it's also uh, laws that we see in the nation surrounding Moses. You read uh, Hammurabi's law code, you will find this principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, even among the ancient Near Eastern cultures of the day. But we have to understand this particular law as it was given in its original context. For those of you who are familiar with D.A. Carson, he makes a very helpful distinction here in understanding this law, that there are two facets to this law of eye for an eye and tooth for a, to- a tooth. I keep wanting to say truth for a truth. If I say it, I don't mean it that way. Tooth for tooth. But there are two facets to this law, both prescriptive and rest- restrictive. What do I mean by that? That this law is both prescriptive and Restrictive. First, when I say that this law is prescriptive, it means that the law is saying this that a man should be punished for his actions. As Paul says to the church of Galatia, a man reaps what he sows. There is a principle of retribution, this is a judicial declaration. You kill a man, you should be put to death life for life. If you steal a man's property, you must restore what has been lost. If you beat your wife, you should be taken out behind the tool shed and dealt with accordingly. That's what we mean when we say that this law is prescriptive. It sets a level of justice, a standard of righteousness to show that the things that you do and the harm that you inflict on others— have consequences. But secondly, there's another side to this principle as well. We would say that this law is not only prescriptive, it is also restrictive. In other words, the punishment that falls upon the transgressor must fit the crime. For those of you who have ever read uh, the, uh, Hugo, um, Victor Hugo's great novel or have seen the Broadway musical Les Miserables, uh, you know of the the main character, Jean Valjean, who spends 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Right? It is a punishment that does not fit the crime. That helps us to see that there are, in fact, unjust laws as well. This is something that we see that's operative even in the American court system today, that there should not be any form of cruel or unusual punishment. Again, rather What this law is saying is that the punishment must fit the crime. This is a good thing. What we see here is that the law is designed to deal with both the victim and the perpetrator. This law is designed to vindicate the victim, but it's also intended and given to protect the transgressor. Uh, Let's say somebody comes and smashes your car window in. Certainly the person who has done that should pay. But perhaps in your wrath and anger, you want to demand too much from him. You want to demand that he be thrown in prison for 30 years. And you go, well, you know, your car's 27 years old. I don't think your car's worth that much. See, in, in one sense, there, there's embedded in this law a principle of mercy that's meant to keep the proper principle of retribution in check. Both facets of this principle are important. It is central to a biblical notion of what true justice and righteousness looks like. And yet we see that by the time of Jesus' own day, they have uh, uh, excised this particular law, this particular principle, and have twisted it to mean something that it does not. Remember what I have said, that this is a judicial principle. It's something that is given to the courts for them to decide to figure out what type of punishment should fall the perpetrator. And yet, there are those in Jesus's own day who have used this as a sort of um, uh, exemption for vigilante justice, personal vendettas, and retaliation. They have twisted the law to where the question once again becomes, what can I get away with without getting in trouble? And Something that we've seen now, this is the fifth time we have seen this principle at play here. You apply it to our day and age. A guy cuts me off in traffic. Sure, I can't murder him, but maybe I can just ride his bumper or blare my horn for the next 30 seconds. Because somebody has to teach him a lesson. And when somebody asks, why did you do that? You go, well, he was just, you know, he deserved it. He did this to me, therefore, he deserves to have this done to him. How many of us act like that way in so many situations? Where we see ourselves as judge, jury, and executioner. And we take it upon ourselves to enact justice, to vindicate ourselves, and then we act in ways that do not correspond with the proper principles of true and biblical justice. We see that this particular heart mentality, this particular disposition of our own heart to get our pound of flesh, runs contrary to the original purpose and intent of God's law. And perhaps we can put it like this by asking a question. It's a question that shows up in at least three or four different places in Scripture. How is it that the whole law is fulfilled? Is it fulfilled by you finally getting your pound of flesh? Is that what Jesus says? Is that what Paul says? Is that what Leviticus says? Or James no, according to the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, we find that there is a guiding principle that tells us how the law is truly fulfilled. Leviticus 19.18, Matthew 22.39, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, James 2.8. Pick your favorite biblical theologian and he will tell you all the exact same thing. The whole law is fulfilled in a single word that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You read First Timothy, and Paul tells us the purpose and intent of the law. The purpose of the law is to train us how to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. The purpose of the law is to instruct us in what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. You want to love God? Okay, well, your love for God must be wholehearted according to Deuteronomy chapter 6-8. To, to You're not allowed to serve any other gods. You must worship God according to how He regulates His worship, not according to your own whims and fancies. You must treat His name with reverence. You must work six days and then on the seventh day you are to rest from all your labors and worship the Lord your God. You want to love your neighbor? Well, you need to stop murdering them. It's not... Real loving, to murder your neighbor, be it in thought, word, or deed, as Jesus Himself has already exposited on the sixth commandment. You want to love your neighbor? Well, do not commit adultery. Cheating on your wife is not a good way to love her, nor is sleeping with your neighbor's wife a good way to love your neighbor. You're to be honest with your speech, therefore you're to not lie or slander your neighbor's reputation. You're to be honest in your work, therefore you're not to steal your neighbor's stuff. And of course, that 10th commandment, which, which gets to the heart of things, you should be content with what you have and stop coveting your neighbor's belongings. You see, that's the scope of the law what does it look like to fulfill the law, That the question, if you're asking the question, what can I get away with, you're asking the wrong question, and you will get a wrong answer. The proper question is, how can I best love my neighbor as myself? And let me tell you this, if you keep going back to this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as your justification for how you're responding, chances are you're not understanding the initial scope and purpose of the law. As the rabbis in Jesus' own day had taken this law and reduced it to something along the lines of, if you tread on my rights, I will execute my vengeance with a fury. Of course, I want to say this, the Lord has given us his law, his moral law, to protect our rights. There are certain rights that are afforded those individuals who are made in the image of God. We spoke about this a few months ago, and we looked at uh, what God's law says about the rights of the unborn. There's so many things that are good. You, you even read in the New Testament, and Paul uh, himself, when, when you read in Acts, as he is arrested, he invokes his rights as a Roman citizen to have a fair trial. Those are good things. It is not wrong to want to have those particular rights protected. But what we must be careful to do is that we don't exalt our own natural rights and personal liberties to such an expense that it now begins to trample down the life and well-being of those around us. And that was what was being encouraged in Jesus' own day by the religious leaders. If we restrict the law simply to protecting our own liberties with no regard from for our neighbor. We have misinterpreted the purpose of the law. We have confused the forest from the trees. We have not read this law in its proper context. You see, for the citizen of heaven, there is a law that runs deeper than our own rights. As important as our own natural rights are, there is a concern for others that supersedes our own personal entitlements and well-being. You see Jesus demonstrating this consummately at the cross. So I was saying earlier, he who was rich beyond all splendor for love's sake became poor. Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, according to 2 Corinthians 8, uh, abandoned, you know, gave up the riches of heaven so that out of, out of his poverty, by his uh, obedience unto death, he might bear our sin, that we might find pardon and mercy. He didn't have to do that. Those weren't bound up with Jesus's own, you know, Jesus' own. Jesus, as it were, he... He he forewent, he foregone his own rights, so that he might love us. He bore those things that he didn't have to do, so that he might do what the law was unable to do, that he might come, that he might save. And now for those who are the citizens of heaven, Jesus is calling us to walk that same path. For the citizen of heaven At the heart of Christian discipleship, there stands not a Bill of Rights, but a cross, where we are called to a life of self denial in crucifying our own desires and comforts, and even our own fractured egos, for the sake of King Jesus. In other words, the lex talionis principle that Jesus is spelling out here, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, finds its intended fulfillment not in you finding a, a, a way to retaliate, but rather in showing deference to those who have harmed you, that there might be reconciliation and restoration. Restoration. I know this is, this is a hard concept to grasp, I think because we are so, I mean, this is something that is kind of embedded in the cultural DNA of, uh, of, of, of American-ness. You, you take classes on American history and, and American citizenship, what stands at the center of our, our political identity are our, our own rights, and again, those rights are a good thing. But there's something as a citizen of heaven that is much more important than even our own rights. We live in a culture so obsessed with inalienable rights. I think this is probably the reason in the Lord's wisdom and providence that our Savior has given us five concrete examples to help us think through what it looks like to respond when we are wronged and how we are to respond respond in a non-retaliatory manner. You see that here in verses 39 to 42, as he teaches us what it looks like to show proper deference when we have in fact been wronged. Again, this cuts against everything embedded in our own natural disposition. I feel like that every statement Jesus has given so far begins to hurt worse and worse and worse and worse. You say, you know, it was said that you shot murder, but you can't call your brother an idiot. You go, okay, well, that stings. Well, you say you, 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 no adultery, but I'm telling you, if you're lusting after another woman, you, you stand liable to the, the fires of hell. I'm telling you, when it comes to, to keeping an oath, you should, you should treat everything you say as if you were bound under oath. Uh, We we see kind of the the ratchet tightening up and Jesus is showing the the depths of the righteousness of God and the depths of of the character of person and the integrity that God requires of his people. Five examples Jesus gives to, 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 to help us think through this very difficult command as he teaches us how to respond to the school bully. The cranky, litigious neighbor, the oppressive government, or even the stranger asking for a handout. We see here the main command that Jesus gives in verse 39. Instead of thinking of, uh, of showing a personal vendetta when wronged, which is what I think every one of us are naturally programmed to do, Jesus says, no, you've got to do this instead. Verse 39, do not resist the evil man. Don't resist him. Well, what does that mean? Well, first off, we need to say that Jesus is not saying that we are to not resist evil temptations. Jesus is not encouraging us to sin. Rather, he is spurring us on to consider what true righteousness really looks like. Second thing we need to recognize is that Jesus, even when he calls us to turn the other cheek, is not calling for an unqualified pacifism. The context is key, Recall. Here, Jesus is talking to a people whose default mode is to defend their own fragile egos at the slightest infraction. And so Jesus' point is this, that, they're, that, that, that when we want to defend ourselves, when we get so puffed up and angry and want to retaliate with, with a vengeance because our name has been drugged through the mud, Jesus says, oh, that, that natural response, that is not the path of the cross. That is not the way of self-denial. That is not the character of the citizen of heaven. Such a retaliatory attitude is not the intent of the law. It is not upon you to execute vengeance. What is it that the Lord says? Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. It is not your prerogative to assume the office of judge, jury, or executioner. Rather, you continue entrusting yourself to the Lord, who is the judge, to do as he sees fit. But for you, you have a particular duty. To continue to love your neighbor. To continue to love the one who has wronged you. As we'll see next week, that you're called to love not only your friends, but your enemies as well. So when Jesus says, do not resist the evil one, what does he mean by the evil one? Well, here he lists several examples. I've already mentioned verse 39 as reference to, uh, to the school, the town bully. What do you do when a guy pops you in the face and knocks out your teeth? The law holds him guilty and tells him that his, need, his teeth need to be popped out. But at the same time, the law does not say that it is your job to do that. It is not your prerogative. Rather, what is your duty? What does it look like to fulfill the law? What does the law of love look like in this situation? What well, Jesus says is very simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. You're to turn the other cheek. Continue entrusting yourself to the Lord, to him who judges justly. I think 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, is so critical here because I think Peter there is, is, is expanding on what Jesus is teaching in this section. That as Jesus himself went to the cross and he was verbally insulted, he was verbally abused. That's what that word there for reviling means in your older translations. Insults were hurled at him, he was beat, spit upon, mocked, jeered at. How did Jesus respond? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He did not return tit for tat. He did not insult back. He did not even say, well, just you wait. Three days later, you'll get yours. No, Jesus, even as he's hanging on the cross, prays for, prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, please. They don't know what they're doing. And Peter says, Jesus has died for us as our representative, but he's also died to set an example for us that we might walk in those same steps. And Jesus here is saying the same thing here. Somebody pops you in the face. It is not your job to give them a knuckle sandwich. Another example, verse 40, that of the litigious neighbor. Right? Do you have a neighbor who wants to sue the pants off of you? Jesus says, well, give them your socks and shoes as well. That's, that's in essence what, what's taught, being talked about here. In, in the Old Testament, if, if somebody wanted to bring a suit against you, they, they, could, um, they could take your coat at night, the very thing that could keep you warm. Or take it during the day, but they would have to return it at night. Jesus says, all right, well, if they want to take that from you, if they want to take your, uh, your, your shirt, give them your coat too. There, there's a, there's an, an attitude of deference there. You think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 as he castigates uh, the church because the church is so busy in Corinth bringing lawsuits against one another. And Paul says, what do you think you're doing? This is not character that befits the people of God. Wouldn't it be better that you just suffer wrong than try to bring your brother into court? What does it look like to fulfill the law? Love fulfills the law. Certainly, there is a time and a place for the church or the civil courts to defend those who are being wronged. I'm not saying that their job isn't there to do that. The job is, what I'm saying, is to let them do their job and don't take it upon yourself. I think we've all seen situations or heard of situations similar to this. And you consider you know, um, going to a, the grocery store and you're, you're in the parking lot and you see somebody's grocery cart get away from them and it rolls to the other side and, and dings the car just a, a couple slots down. And, and the guy who sees his car get dinged jumps out and starts screaming at the guy who accidentally let his, his shopping cart get away. And of course, the guy who's being yelled at, what happens? He bows up. His pride has been wounded. He begins shouting and next thing you know, there's, there's a big battle of fisticuffs going on. There's kind of an escalation of violence because nobody knows how to show deference to one another. Jesus is saying, when this comes, the way in which the citizen of heaven brings peace is that he takes it on the cheek. He takes the blows and he does not retaliate. The buck stops here. The buck stops with us. The character is, it is incumbent upon us to respond with grace. And let the Lord handle those things as he desires and in his providence. See, our Savior is telling us that we need to go the extra mile and suffering long with those who mistreat us. In fact, he tells us with the next example to do that quite literally, that of an oppressive government. This, this, you know In the Roman world, the Roman soldiers had the right to commandeer citizens to walk an extra mile with them to carry their load, to continue doing particular duties for them. Think of how painful that would be, how humiliating it would be to have a government do that to you. Jesus says, well, if they, if they tell you to go one mile, you, you go two. This is not the place to stomp your heels in the sand and go, well, my rights. Now, as a citizen of heaven... There's a certain deference you show to them, even when they have overextended their bounds of their lawful authority. If they're not calling you to sin, if they're not causing you to sin. You know, if a Roman centurion tells you to walk one mile, you go with him too. If an English captain tells you to feed his troops for breakfast, you fix them lunch as well. If only I had an example of when the American government has overstepped their bounds. I have a friend this week uh, who texted me, he said he was listening to a a sermon from a uh, a pastor by the name of Mark Jones, a PCA pastor up in in British Columbia in Vancouver, and apparently he was preaching on this passage as well, and my buddy sent me this particular audio clip, not knowing that I was working on this sermon as well, and and, and Mark Jones' pastor, who's written a bunch of stuff that I really like, he's uh, done a book with Joel Beakey on Puritan theology that I, I commend to anybody here. Um, a book on Christ that's just beautiful, a couple books he's written on Christ. But anyways, Mark Jones gives the example, so if you don't like it, you can take it up with him. But he gives this example, he says, hey, if the government tells you to wear two masks, you wear 12. (laughs) It stings. Does anybody like what Jesus is saying here? I could tell you right now, I don't. But this is the very context in which Jesus is speaking. What does a citizen of heaven do when when, when you have a, a, a tyrannical regime that's that's putting uh, you under its thumb? Is, is now the time to you know to, to throw up the don't tread on me flags? I think there's a time and place for certain things like that, but as Christians, we have to be very careful in how we respond as Christians. I mean, it's the great thing about our particular form of government. If you don't like what the particular people in office are do, doing, vote them out of office. You know, uh, uh, bring a lawsuit you know, it, within, the, church, within the, the civil courts. Uh, try to have uh, unjust laws overturned, but we don't have the authority simply just to declare ourselves, you know, a law unto ourselves, and therefore say, well, we don't have to obey it. In fact, Jesus is saying, actually, what you have to do is you need to go the extra mile. That's what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven as a uh, walking through this earth, as a pilgrim and as a stranger. You see, grace does the unexpected because we are free in Christ. We are now free to serve our neighbors with joy unconstrained. We see this not as a bare duty, but as a great honor and privilege to serve those just as Christ has come to serve us. Even as he came under the law, bearing the curse, bearing the curse of the law, he did not have to bear. Jesus could have easily said, well, I don't deserve this. Jesus on the cross could have easily said, well, in fact, he said right before his crucifixion, don't you know I could summon a legion of angels and they could deliver me? That was his natural rights as the son of God. And yet, he abdicates those rights. He turns the other cheek that he might effect the salvation of his people. And though we don't bring about the salvation of anybody by our obedience to Christ, we are nevertheless called to obey Christ and walk in his steps. When the state persecutes you for doing good, do not be troubled, but give a reason for the hope that is within you and do it with gentleness and respect. how how relevant Jesus' own words are for us today in this day and age. And yet Jesus gives one final example, one that I think at first glance seems oddly out of place. Notice all these other examples are that of adversarial figures. The litigious neighbor, the bully, the oppressive uh, government. And now, slapped alongside all of those, is the guy who walks up and asks you for money. I think it's kind of funny, but isn't that how we view people who approach us on the street asking for financial help? What do we do? You kind of bow up and you think, who are you? You kind of throw in the stink eye. You say, what do you want from me? Why are you trying to hose me over? Automatic assumption that they are up to no good. We take that adversarial posturing towards them. And again, I, I need to clarify, we need to take what Jesus is saying here within the broad scope of the whole of Scripture. Jesus is not saying for us not to exercise wisdom in, uh, in uh, giving of alms or, or in lending funds. You read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs says there are very particular questions you need to be asking. And yet at the same time, we have to be reminded what God has commanded his people in Deuteronomy where he detests the miserly Scrooge who refuses to help a man in need. So I had Deuteronomy chapter 15 read earlier. If one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but rather you shall open your hand to him and lend what is sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Be very careful lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and your eye looks grudgingly on your neighbor and you give him nothing and he cries out to the Lord and now the Lord holds you accountable and guilty of sin." The New Testament keeps coming back to this passage over and over and over again. You read 2 Corinthians 8 9, and that stands at the heart of those two chapters. One of the key passages from the Old Testament that stands at the heart of those two chapters. You think of Jesus when he speaks on giving. He's not saying to give thoughtlessly, but he's also saying you need to check your disposition. What does it look like to give graciously? What does it look like to fulfill the law? When it comes to giving, we should not be asking, what's in it for me? This runs contrary to the law of love. Rather, the better question to ask is, how can I best love and serve my neighbor? I think we could easily begin to multiply the examples, but these five illustrations really expose just how shallow our own righteousness is here on this matter, at least speaking for myself. It exposes how shallow and hollow my own righteousness is. I encourage you this week to ruminate these examples That Christ gives and begin to ask yourselves how does God's law, how does Jesus' command here direct me and how I am to respond when I have been personally wronged by somebody else? Consider your own heart. What's your knee jerk response when you have been wronged? Is it the immediate desire for revenge, retaliation, personal vendetta? Or is it the response of self restraint, courtesy? forbearance and love. Like naturally speaking, we all know what the answer is. Like none of us are able to do this on our own. And yet the good news of the gospel is that under the new covenant, Christ has given us a spirit who now enables us to begin to walk in his ways and to begin to fulfill the law. And, and, and to go in the direction that the law directs us, but still to, in one sense, do what the law was unable to do. In so many ways, the law can only restrain and command, but it cannot empower. And yet, Jesus gives His Spirit poured out into our hearts that enables us to imitate our Savior so that when we are personally wronged, we do not immediately default to vigilante justice mode. What we see is this is not a weak virtue. It takes great strength to do what Christ commands here. Strength that is, in fact, impossible apart from the Spirit's aid. It requires a supernatural work. So, one final example I'd like you to consider Moses. Numbers chapter 12, where the Lord commends Moses for being the meekest man on the face of the earth. And yet, it comes in a particular context when there's an attempted mutiny within the church. Among the assembly of the people of God, Moses' own sister and brother have said, we want to assume the leadership for ourselves. And the Lord comes as judge, and in a blazing fury, strikes Miriam with leprosy. Now, if that happened to you, and, and you were Moses, if I were Moses, I could tell you what my initial response would be. Finally, she gets her just desserts, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But that's not Moses' response, is it? Brother Moses turns to the Lord and says, Lord, please forgive her and save. Even though Moses had the right to see his sister and brother punished for their crime, he forgoes that right and rather intercedes on their behalf and they are healed. And the Lord commends Moses for his humility and for his meekness. It takes great strength to do that. Moses called the meekest man on the face of the earth for that. In fact, there's only one who has ever been meeker than Moses. And it's Christ himself. Who himself had done the same thing. That though He had done no wrong, though there was no sin to be found in him, as he hangs being nailed to a cross, though he himself had been innocent of any wrongdoing. Though he says he has the right to call a legion of angels to to, to rescue him, he decides to abdicate that, that natural right he has, and rather intercedes for those who have wronged him. And as I've already mentioned in 1 Peter 2, Peter, riding to a church, sitting under the thumb of a wicked government, says this, that you have been called to this very same lifestyle. Because Christ suffered for you, dying in your place, he has also left you an example that you might follow in his steps. So that when he was slandered, when he was insulted, when he was verbally abused, when he was beaten, he did not, he did not retaliate. He did not insult. He did not give uh, his captors a knuckle sandwich, but rather he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, what we have before us is a very tall order, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. May God grant us the grace to show mercy to others in all gentleness and forbearance, even as he has shown mercy to us in our sin and our misery. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that um, as your word convicts, you would give us uh, the proper response in how to treat those who wrong us. As we are mistreated every day to varying degrees and by various people in various offices of authority, either over us or below us, give us wisdom in how to show the love of Christ uh, that we might walk in the path of our Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.